This episode of Primetime with Sean Mooney is brought to you by Audible. And coming up, I'll tell you how you can try Audible for free. However, standing by right now is the one and the only Sean Mooney. Who? Mooney, everybody's got a price for the million dollar man. After you threw him off through the announce table, Taker climbs back down, he gets in the ring, and he goes, see if he's breathing. So right before I called 911, I thought she'd fallen asleep. Kind of shook her a little bit to, to wake her up, and she did not respond. I don't go down to my, go to my grave testifying or whatever, swearing that Davey was not on drugs. If he was on drugs, the way Brett says, how does, I mean, how great does that make Davey? Are you laughing, Sean? I get off the track here all the time. Did you just laugh, Sean? You go ahead and chop me. Give me a big chop. I'll sell. I'll give you my whole chest and everything. And then I'll look at you like this, and then I'll punch you right in the mouth as hard as I can. <laughs> Attention, Sean Mooney, you scum, you slime, you maggot. If there's no further questions, you're dismissed. Carry on, maggot. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Prime Time with Sean Mooney. Welcome once again as we uh, have another great episode coming your way. Coming off uh, a really interesting episode with Eli Drake. I really love Eli, and I've gotten to know him a little bit uh, at the uh, NWA tapings and uh, also doing the podcast with him. Found out about a pretty incredible journey he's taken. He's worked for so many different organizations, uh, had some things that knocked him down. He was with the WWE, uh, thought he was going to have a big opportunity there. It didn't work out, but you know what? He's bounced back, man. That guy just kept going and has had uh, great success in the world of professional wrestling and also is now finding uh, a, new, uh, a new beginning, really, with NWA, and he's become one of their stars. Uh, you know, let me talk to you, has really become a rallying cry for the, the crowds there. I mean, they really just get pumped up whenever he shows up in the arena there, and he is just uh, fantastic, and I really want to thank Eli for coming on. We'll have him back as we will have other NWA stars here on Primetime. But also, we have other guests as well, and that is the case today. Uh, we've had um, uh, WWE uh, referee uh, here before. You remember we had Earl Hebner on, and uh, he had a lot of great stories to tell. What a career that he had with the WWF, WWE. Well, this week we're going to welcome Charles Robinson, who is uh, a famed uh, referee with the WWE, but... He's got quite a history with the WCW, uh, had some uh, good runs there, not only as the third man in the ring, but also stepped into the ring and wrestled, which we'll be talking about as a little Nate. And uh, folks, what's uh, great about this episode is we're doing something a little bit different because um, Charles and I went on for a long time. We had a really long conversation and uh, we put it out there to let people throw some questions out there for him. And I'm telling you, it's one of the greatest responses we've ever had. We must have had, I think, over 50 questions from people coming in. So we kind of whittled, uh, some of them were the same questions. We whittled them down and we did a whole Q&A session. So what we're going to do is we're going to break this up in two parts. Uh, we're releasing the first part of the episode today, this uh, Wednesday officially as we drop it. I know our Patreon members got it uh, early. But uh, we're going to drop the other part of it, the Q&A, where he actually gives us a tour of his uh, George Michael uh, shrine. I was going to say uh, museum, but really it's like a shrine. But just some really great stuff, as we also have in this uh, episode. But we have the video version as well because we uh, did the interview on Skype and we used the video version of it too. So there's a lot of ways you can catch this episode and it's all coming up, so you can get it uh, the first part today, the other part on Friday. Patreon members will get both episodes early because we love you so much and you're so loyal, so that'll be coming your way. Uh, we'll get to my conversation, the first part, with Charles coming up, but also I want to remind everybody uh, that uh, I'd love to have you email me. You can do that by emailing me at primetimemooney at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at primetimemooney, and I want to welcome... Once again, Audible to the show. We love Audible. I love listening to audiobooks through Audible. And you have a chance to uh, test audio Audible out for free, absolutely free. Uh, all you have to do is go to uh, audible.com slash primetime. That's audible.com slash primetime. We'll be telling you more about that 
in this episode. But right now, what do you say? Let's get to my conversation, part one, with Charles Robinson. Ding, ding, ding. Folks, the idea of the third man in the ring is that he's supposed to stay out of the way, govern the match with authority. And my guest was uh, is very good at doing that, except trouble seems to always find him. <laughs> and, that sounds uh, trouble, about right. Yeah, and trouble wasn't often kind. It hasn't been kind all along the way. Uh, but I say that uh, in jest, and I'm really happy to have a legendary referee, uh, Charles Robinson, and I won't just say WWE because he also uh, was very well known when the WCW was in its glory days. But uh, Charles Robinson, or Little Nate, as many people know you, welcome to Primetime with Sean Mooney. How are you? Sean, I'm doing great. and Thanks so much for uh, having me on your podcast. You know, uh, I have, uh, you know, doing my uh, research for this this conversation and also you know, knowing knowing some of the big events that you've been involved in over the years and it always strikes me as interesting uh, uh, as, you know, how people get into the business. And a lot of times people, you know, they they want to be a wrestler. That's, you know, and and, and they end up, you know, uh, as a referee because right. they didn't have that opportunity or whatever. But uh, early on, were you attracted to saying, you know, like, I think it'd be pretty cool to be a ref because I know that you emulated uh, Tommy Young. So was this something that came on early or did you want to be a wrestler? Um, of course, I mean, growing up, I grew up in the Mid-Atlantic area, you know, mm-hmm. Jim Crockett Promotions. Uh, fell in love with Ric Flair. That was my first love of, of wrestling, yeah. just with that. So I think as a kid, I always wanted to be a wrestler. Mm-hmm. Um, I just never had the size. Yeah. And um, life moved on. And then when I started getting close to 30, I ran into a group here in Charlotte. It was called the PWF, Professional Wrestling Federation. And it was run by George South and the Italian Stallion. Hmm. And um, I actually started out doing photos for them. And just by chance, one night, they wanted to do an angle where I got attacked. And then the next week, I would come back as a special guest referee. And once I came back, they said, Charles, you're you're pretty natural at this. <laughs> and um I guess compared to who they had, I might have been. But, you know. <laughs> but was it was it deep in talent, huh? Not real deep. Referee wise, yeah. Yes, correct. Yeah. And um, you know, I watched Tommy Young for years and years, and I just love the way that that he refereed. And I think he made he added a lot to the match. I don't think he took anything away from it. And that's what I tried to do when I was in the ring early on. Yeah. Tell me a, l- a little bit about that, that love for Southern wrestling, because it is, uh, it's, it's a whole different style that, uh, people, uh, especially, uh, you know, living in the, that part of the country just, uh, fell in love with growing up. And, and, uh, it's certainly been rich, you know, over the years. But you mentioned, you know, Ric Flair is a guy that you immediately were attracted to. I think, uh, you're, or the first match you ever saw was him and, and Wahoo McDaniel. So right. uh, tell me about that love early on with in Southern wrestling and, and how it's different. You know, just growing up, I always thought that the NWA and Mid-Atlantic was so realistic. Yeah. I believed everything that I saw. Even as I got older, the way that it was presented made me believe what I was watching was real, not predetermined. Mm-hmm. And um, I turned on the WWF at the time, and I would see things like Doink the Clown and things like that, which they were great performers, but they were more characters. Yeah. And they just, Ric Flair was just the nature boy. He wasn't a, a clown. And Ricky Steamboat, Blackjack Mulligan, these guys, they were just all very, very tough guys, very, very talented uh, performers. You know, and, and uh, that's a really good point you make about that style is, uh, and it's something that would serve the WCW tremendously well in in the 90s when uh, we had the Monday Night Wars was, you know, blurring that line. And uh, as you said, uh, you know, the, the WWF in the early 80s when the, the wave was really just starting to crush there, it was, it was, uh, you know, there were very strong characters and um you know, you, a lot of it was promo based and that kind of thing. But, uh, that style of wrestling though was you like tough guys, you know, brawlers. 
and uh, and a lot of people uh, who are you know I'm, I guess like the purists uh, really love that style of wrestling. Absolutely, and I, I loved it as well. And there were times that I enjoyed watching WWF. Please don't get mm-hmm. me wrong. Yeah. Um, there's always something for everyone everywhere. And but I just gravitated more towards Jim Crockett because it was here in my backyard. You know, every every week we'd go to the Coliseum to see it or to the Park Center to see Mid Atlantic Wrestling. Yeah, and uh, God, you said you were 30 before you really got involved in this business. That's that's pretty amazing. How did that happen? Um, you know, you just right place at the right time because I was in the Navy from high school till I was 24, and then I got into sales when I got out of the Navy. Um, something that I did not enjoy, but it was a living. And after I went through a divorce, I just saw I saw George South and the Italian Stallion on TV one time and saw they were doing a show nearby, and I just went to the show, and I fell in love with their show. They had such a great talent base there, and um, I told them I wanted to take photos for them. And for some reason, they said yes. So without George South and... The Italian Stallion, there would be no uh, career for me. So did you know how to take pictures? I mean, were you a, a decent photographer? You just said this is a good way to get inside and get close to the wrestlers. And- well, you know, um, in the Navy, I was on a submarine. With such a small crew, you have a lot of different yeah. jobs that you have to, um, to do. Yeah. And one of my jobs was the ship's photographer. So, so I had an eye in the ability to be a photographer. And I went to them and told them that I was a photographer. And we actually had several photos that were published in the inside wrestling, the wrestler magazines. Well, so you, how did you make this transition though? I mean, you said it was kind of like this opportunity. They said, Hey, we got an idea. Uh, but were you doing some ref thing in the meantime, where you, you get into the ring and, uh, you know, uh, getting some training, or how? To, or is it just one of those things that we just throw you in there and we've got this idea with the camera and you're going to have this flash bulb go off in this guy's eyes and we're going to take it from there. And that's exactly what they did. You know, the guy <laughs> came out, threw me in the post, busted me open, you know, very first time in wrestling and I'm bleeding all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, seemed to, that seemed to happen a lot to you. Yes, it did. Along absolutely. the way. And, yeah. um, you know, they just threw me in there. They told me to cut a little promo about coming back the next week, and I did. And I showed up the next week, and they gave me a referee shirt and threw me in the ring. So did you have an aptitude for it at that point, or you just start picking it up? Or, or, or how did that uh, you know, start to happen where this started to become a regular thing for you? You know, I, I had a very good idea just from watching Tommy all those years and watching all the other referees in um, yeah. WCW, the Nick Patricks. Um, the Randy Andersons, people like that. Um, you can learn so much just by observing yeah. and just watching a lot of videotapes. And, I, you know, it's just something that you learn as you go. I mean, the first time I wasn't great. I don't think anyone is. But as time goes on, you learn where not to be, where to be, what to do, and what not to do. And um, I was very, very fortunate that, that Stallion and George South, they were patient with me to do that. Yeah. Well, it's kind of one of those things where they say, you know, stay out of the way and don't step in front of the hard camera. Is that kind of the first couple of things they tell you? Well, they didn't say that because they didn't have a camera. They didn't actually have a TV show. So so you could could move around. I actually, once I had been refing for them for maybe um, six months, I had a video camera and a monitor that I carried for my, one of my jobs. So I actually brought that, and that was the first time that we started taping the PWF shows. Yeah. That way I could actually watch back what I was doing as well. So uh, fast forward here uh, as we move sure. along here with uh, okay. how you know it actually started to become serious for you. And I know then uh, that you had this dream, I guess. You thought you didn't want to go back to sales, I'm sure. Absolutely. Uh, but you wanted to go big time, and, and uh, you, know, you talk about persistence. Um, what was your plan? Uh, you know, at some point you said, I think I can do this at a elite level. And, uh, what did you do? Um, I actually contacted, uh, Terry Taylor, mm-hmm. who was talent relations with WCW. 
and I bothered him for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks on end. I would send videotapes. I would call his office. I would write letters. Um, just asked him for a shot. And eventually, they were in Charlotte, North Carolina at the um, old Coliseum, the Independence Arena, and I just showed up, and I confronted Terry, and he asked me if I had my bag with me, if I had my gear, and I said, well, Terry, I think we're always supposed to carry <laughs> carry our bag, right? First rule, yeah. First rule. And um, he goes, well, we'll take a look at you tonight and, and see what we can do for you. And it worked out. Uh, you, it did work that, out. Yeah, who was that first match? Do you remember? Um, it was Chris Adams and Kendall Wyndham, I believe, <laughs> if I'm not mistaken. It was yeah. a dark match for uh, for Nitro. And afterwards, they said, hey, I uh, think you got something? Or how did it progress from there? Well, Jody Hamilton, um, he uh, he was the person that would talk to me next. And that's what he said. He goes, just just wait, kid. We'll get to you. <laughs> you know, and um, I waited for a week or two. And I got a call to be in Orlando in October for the Universal TV tapings. Yeah. And that's hey. where I started out. Yeah, and and you came in at a uh, a pretty damn good time. Um, uh, this was a point right where they were still uh, you know riding high they in were. the WCW. So uh, fitting into that world, what it must have been pretty crazy because uh, I mean, boy, that that was what ninety seven, and and uh, it was. things were going really well. It was it was going great, and you know, and just being a huge wrestling fan, and and I watch wrestling every week. Anytime uh-huh. it was on TV, I watched it. So um, I was starstruck first time I showed up at the arena um, at Universal Studios to be a part of it. And one of the things that, you know, it's, it's bittersweet. They brought me in just for a trial basis. But then um, Brian Hildebrand, also known as Mark Curtis, mm-hmm. um, that's when he started getting sick with, with cancer. And um, uh, they needed someone to take his spot until he was well enough to come back. So how long did it take you to you know to settle in to where you got over that I can't believe I'm here and doing these matches with people like Ric Flair and Hulk Hogan and all these other guys that they had on that roster? Uh, years. <laughs> Never <laughs> it really. Took years. Yeah. You know, I mean, if you're you're in the ring with a, a Ric Flair or a Hogan or someone like that, um, you know, you're, I felt very honored just to be there. And and you would get the butterflies because you're with the best of the best when you're with them. So um, did you, you know, tell me a little bit about that period of time that, uh, like when you did come in, uh, you know, what it was like just to be in that atmosphere where, you know, they're they're beating the, the WWE every week. You know, that was very, very exciting, you know, and, and we were we were watching the WWE to see what they were doing. Um yeah. You know, it was an exciting time. I, that was the best time for pro wrestling, in my opinion, is when when you have competition. Oh, yeah. You know, um, it makes you strive a little bit harder, not become complacent with where you are. So I was excited to be part of that. And now, I know that uh, you had, I don't know how your relationship developed with Rick. Um, I, I know you, you talk about that you met him early, I guess, when you were even a, as a kid. But how did that relationship start and then uh, grow? Well, I started out, um, you know, just going to the matches. Um, finally, I think the first time I met Rick was probably in the late 70s at a ballpark at, in Rocky Mountain, North Carolina. He was having a mm-hmm. match against Wahoo McDaniels. And um, during the intermission, I went down there just to say hi. He goes, kid, go buy me a Coke. <laughs> so he gave me a dollar bill. I went and got his Coke for 50 cents and went back down, you know. That's yeah. the first time that I actually met him and got a photo and got the autograph, which, unfortunately, I don't have anymore, you know. You lose those things. Yeah. Um, but then as time went on, I wanted to start up a Ric Flair fan club. So I don't recommend doing this, but I found out where he lived. <laughs> and I went to his house. Oh and, um, and, yeah, and uh, I remember getting out of the car and, Ashley was, gosh, maybe five or six years old, and I come up, and um, she goes, I'm Ashley Flair. <laughs> what are you doing here? 
you know, and I, I said, I'm here Stalker. to see your dad about, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's what I was basically. But, um, but I really wanted to start up a fan club, you know, that yeah. I thought it would be something great to do. I didn't know about all the corporate things going on with WCW and, right. and, and such that you had to, you know, you, you just can't do that stuff. Um, they, they own all the rights to that, but, right. but Rick was very, very nice. And, um, he didn't have you know, arrested. <laughs> he did not have me arrested. He actually showed me the gym in his garage, which was awesome. Oh, wow. And, um, but, um, you know, for someone just to show up on your doorstep like that, yeah. um, it was pretty amazing. That is. So, uh, did you remind him of that later? Did he remember what <laughs> he did remember that? Cause there's not very many people would <laughs> come to his house. Have the guts. Yeah. Yes. So once you were there, though, when how did it really uh, this relationship go until you know to the point where you know you're little Nate? Well, you know, I I did not see Rick much until I actually got into WCW in '97, uh-huh. and the the whole thing with little Nate was actually Kevin Nash's idea. I guess he mm-hmm. was doing the booking then, and Kevin Nash came up to me one day and said, "Hey, how would you like to have a?" Uh, mini Nate's robe and and get to wrestle on a pay-per-view i said that sounds great he goes yeah you have to you have to lose to a woman i said i don't care Care who i lose to or (laughs) what doesn't matter (laughs) and then he explained the whole concept of what the angle would be and you know i was just flabbergasted that they would ask me to do it but being as big of a fan everybody knew that i was a huge rick flair fan Right. From from the time that I was there, so um, I was I was happy as could be. Yeah, I uh, I imagine that uh, just given that opportunity. But were you a little concerned because you were going to have to go uh, in there and, and you know take some bumps and 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 look at somewhat like you knew what you're doing? Did you had you done any training really before that? And how much did you do to prepare for some, for those matches? Um, leading up to the match that I had at um, Slamboree, yeah. uh, we spent maybe a week in Tampa with uh, Randy Savage, and he took gorgeous George and myself, and we worked out in a unair-conditioned 110-degree <laughs> warehouse for a week, oh, and, um, and we went through everything that he wanted done. Um, this was his baby, and he was very, very patient, and... Considering neither one of us had any in-ring experience wrestling, um, I thought the match came out pretty good. Yeah. No, you handled yourself pretty well. I mean, you look at, uh, you know, some of the stuff you did in there. And then, of course, that uh, that match with Medusa, uh, where uh, you ended up uh, with Randy dropping the elbow. Uh, you look at that video, and I looked at it again today, did you know right away, like, oh, my God, I mean, you, everything's gone. Uh, tell me about that, the closing minutes of that of that uh, that match. Yeah, you know, we, we had the whole thing uh, synchronized pretty well with Rick doing a flip, me doing a flip, slam, slam, clothesline, yeah. clothesline. Flares out of the ring, you know, no reason for Rick to take the fall <laughs> if I'm in the ring. So I'm going to be the one that's going to be taking the elbow from Randy. Yeah. Um, you know, the problem was nobody told me how to brace for the elbow, so I just laid there and gave my whole body. Randy, unfortunately, nobody was told you. Randy didn't nobody. say this is how you're going to take this. No, absolutely not. You know, um, so I just laid there and didn't cinch up, didn't breathe out, probably held my breath. And at 285, when a guy that size lands on you, yeah. um, something has to give. And, of course, at first I thought my air was knocked out. Yeah. You know, no big deal. I just rolled out of the ring, tried to catch my breath, got dressed, went up to my hotel room that was attached to the arena. And about two hours later, I still couldn't breathe. So I called Jimmy Hart and told him, and he called the EMTs, and they took me to the hospital and says, Son, you have a collapsed lung. And you have a cracked sternum oh, and some of your vertebrae are a little cracked. So <laughs> we're going to keep go, you. <laughs> we're going to keep you. Uh. 
the next day, the doctors actually released me and let me fly home to Charlotte. Really? With a a collapsed lung, which is nuts. I'm glad they did for the simple fact I'd rather be in the hospital at home versus halfway across the United States. But I went to the hospital as soon as I got home, and they admitted me, and I was there for two weeks. Wow. And I, uh, and knowing uh, Randy and the professional that he was, I, I imagine he he felt awful about it. Uh, what did he tell you after that match? And did he, you know, keep in touch through he it? He did. Yeah, I, absolutely. Uh, Randy called almost every day. Um, so much so it could be a nuisance because I'm trying to rest. Yeah. But uh, but he was awesome, man. He called me, and you know he'd go, "Oh yeah, I'm gonna get you some money," <laughs> you know. So <laughs> so he got me a nice payday. Um, for everything, which yeah. was very, very nice of him. Wow. But, well, uh, you say that, that was the end of your, your wrestling uh, career, but uh, I've seen some of the, the, uh, the, the, the shots that you took along the way as a ref, and it, it, it doesn't sound to me like that really ended your wrestling career. Uh, tell me about some of the other things that happened to you. Uh, along the way that have, have happened in, in the ring as a referee who supposedly is the guy who is just there to make sure the match goes well. But uh, that's not always the case. And so uh, physically, what kind of damage have you taken over the years? Um, when I was still with the PWF, I had my elbow kicked out of the socket by a uh, wrestler by the name of Firebreaker Chip. Um, unfortunately, I didn't have the nerve to stay in the ring. I saw my bone sticking outside the elbow and I rolled out of the ring and walked to the back. Yeah. Um, I, I hear of a lot of people that get injured and they stay in, they finish the match, but yeah. I'd only been working on the independence for maybe a year when that happened. So um, it sort of freaked me out that my elbow was yeah. not where it was supposed to I be. I could see that. And probably you were making a lot of money for that match, which was worth uh, sticking around, right? How much? Yeah, I, I, I think I got a hot dog and <laughs> a soda. <laughs> they, they wanted to charge me extra for the chili and the onion, so I didn't uh, go with those. So, so um, but yeah, you're right. You don't make any money. You're yeah. on your own dime for injuries with your insurance. So, um, you know, that was actually probably the worst because I was in a sling, um, one of those mechanical extenders, I guess, for your arm. Have you ever seen those, yeah, Sean? Yeah, yeah. I was in one of those for about three months. So oh, nice. uh, that was that was fun, um, but those are the only times that I've been injured. Now I've had some big, big, big no calls. concussions, or I mean, you, some of the stuff, man. I uh, see you take. Uh... You know what? I, you know, I've been hit with chairs. I'm sure yeah. I got concussed on those. I do remember my first nitro. It was in Tampa, Florida. And the NWO came out, and they sent all the referees out, and Scott Hall came up to me. We were outside the ring, and he punched me, so I took a bump like I was used to taking. Of course, not thinking that there was no padding, and I hit my head on the concrete, and I saw stars. So I'm sure that I was concussed in that instance. Yeah. You know what's interesting is that, uh, you know, having a conversation with uh, Earl Hebner, and I'd never really thought about it before, but as a referee, you have to take the bump differently than than a wrestler because it's it's got to be – it's a total shock, first of all. You're not expecting right. to get hit, and you have to fall like naturally, like you would if you were just somebody, you know, who was getting ran into. And it's, a, it's really – it's a different way that you react, right? Yeah. In some ways, I feel that way, but also, if you do it differently than how the wrestlers are bumping, that means that what they are doing is not real. Right. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. So, I think, to me personally, my opinion is, you should sort of bump like the wrestlers. That way, it all looks the same. Because why would you want to say that the way that everyone else is taking a bump is predetermined, but yours isn't? Right. You see what I'm well, saying? Yeah, yeah, but I, I, yeah, but I think it's in a, in a, and, uh, the way he explained it is that, you know, like, for example, you getting caught between two guys. It's, it's yes. a, it's a whole yes. different, uh, form of combat, I guess, or you're getting, right. you know, you're caught in this violence and you would, you would naturally react differently. Your body different. would. 
than they right. would because they're locked in, like say they, you know, as a as they're squared off, you know, that it would be Absolutely. a different way to take the bump. And it's it just it's it's true that uh, you know they have to make it look, I guess, in, in a sense that you don't expect it at all. I, I don't. Know, right. I, I guess that's the best way I can explain it. But it is. I understand. It's a different. Saying. It's a different art. Is the way that 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 I look at it. Right. And I, I and I agree with that too. You know, and coming from Earl saying that, you know, he's definitely one of the best ever in the business. So, um, I, I certainly respect what he has to say. He's been doing it long enough. And, and mentioning that, you know, the Hebners, uh, did you? Uh, I don't know if you looked up to them or were they referees because uh, you know, kind of before your time, uh, before you really arrived on the scene and they were pretty ensconced in uh, the WWF, WWE, uh, were they two guys that you kind of looked up to or is it your? Oh, your- yes, absolutely, Sean. You know, I mean, they were involved in some of the best angles that the WWE did, you know, and, and certainly in their prime, um, they were two two amazing referees. You know, there's someone someone that I can learn a lot from, and even now, yeah. you know, you go back and watch stuff that they've done. You can learn from them. Yeah, and, and, they have and great knowledge. Yeah, and obviously you were really well thought of, and I think that the compliment to a referee is when you know you have some of the best, the elite uh, wrestlers in the business want you in the ring there with them. And, uh, you know, during that, that period of time when you were there, when it was really just, uh, a great time to be with the WCW, uh, what are some of the matches with them that really stand out? I know there were others later with the WWE, with, uh, you know, Sean and Rick, but during that time with the WCW, what matches really stand out to you? Uh, probably the biggest was Hogan Goldberg at the Georgia Dome mm-hmm. when Goldberg won his first title. Um, that's definitely probably the biggest one to be part of, in my opinion. Um, you know, I did a lot of Flair Hogan matches, yeah. too, of course. Um, some that were silly. I think we had a first blood match, and then there was a pinfall in the match, which made no, no, sense. <laughs> no sense whatsoever. But, um, you know, I was very, very lucky to work some, with a lot of those guys. And, and even during that that time, even though the, uh, you know, the ratings certainly didn't reflect it, was there uh, a lot of times when you kind of look like, what are they thinking here with the way we're going with some of these storylines? Um, I think that happens all the time in this, in this profession anyway, you know, yeah. but um, it comes a point where it's not for us to question, it's for us to do. Go out and work. And go out and work. And, you know, but now today if someone does something that if they bring it up before the match and it doesn't make sense, if I bring it up, um, a lot of times they'll change it. They'll say, hey, we didn't even think about that. Sometimes Mm -hmm. they forget how it's going to affect the referee. When you started to, uh, you know, uh, at one point, did it get to uh, the situation where you started to really see things start to turn? Uh, with the WCW, well, you know, what do you think was the beginning of the end there? Wow, I don't know exactly when it started. I mean, just because my memory's not as good as I would like. Um, no. But you know, you could tell the last year when they were talking about Time Warner and AOL and that merger, um, things just didn't feel happy within the locker room. Uh-huh. You know. Um, I didn't hang out with the guys a lot. I, I ran around with with Rick Sum and Arn Anderson and our trainer, who was Danny Young. Um, that's really who I hung out with. I didn't I didn't listen to what was going on in the locker room a lot and what was going on. Like when Vince Russo came in, people say, "How was Vince?" I never talked to Vince Russo. How was Eric? I yeah. never ta- I never talked to Eric Bischoff. You know. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I remember one time when I first got there, um, I was so enamored, you know, Eric Bischoff's a big deal. So I was excited to be there. And he actually told Terry Taylor one time, he goes, would you please tell that little blonde headed referee to quit staring at me? It's creeping me out. (laughs) (laughs) So that stuff is pretty funny. And uh, I asked Eric about it 
not too long ago, he goes, I don't remember saying that, but I probably did. Probably did. Yeah, right, yeah. for sure. Uh, that's very funny. Uh, but when, when it, uh, you know, started to go south and you mentioned hanging out with Rick, uh, at the time, yep. that must have just been crazy. Uh, I don't know how, you know, how many stories you've revealed over the time, but, you know, I've heard quite a few of people who are actually close to him. Uh, what was that like? You know, Rick, he, he would go wide open all the time. You yeah. know, when he was in the ring, 100% professional, um, the best in the business, in my opinion. But when he was done with work, it was time to play. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, and when he did it, he wanted to do it first class. There was no going second rate with him. You know, if we were going to drive town to town, he was going to be in a nice car. The hotel that we stayed at, it was going to be in a nice hotel, and it had better have a bar. Yeah. So, um, you know, he just wanted to relax and, and have a great time. Why do you think you two got along so well? I don't know. Um, maybe he just wanted help out a, a young kid from where he lived. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I have no idea. The, the person that really took me under their wing was Arn Anderson, though. Really? You know, from, yes. Um, from the first time I got there, he just took me in. He would let me ride with him. I don't know how many times he let me stay in his room just so I could save on a hotel room. Um he, he was the person that took care of me the most, him and the trainer, Danny Young. Wow, that's yeah. great. A lot of people don't know that. They, they think Rick did everything for me, but it was actually Arn and Danny that yeah. really, really took care of me. Well, that's it's kind of a natural thing because of the fact that you were involved in these you know these storylines with them. But uh, that's very cool. I never I, I never uh, heard that before that you were that you were close to Arn as well. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. At what point did you uh, decide maybe it was time to get out of there? To get out of of the WCW. Uh, when, when the WWE bought us. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I was there at the last. Uh, oh, I last thought you left trial. earlier. I no, thought you left no, earlier. No, I actually did the Flair Sting match, the last match on Nitro. I did that match, and um, I went home for two months, two and a half months. And dug ditches and built decks, did a lot of manual labor, which I don't mind doing. And um, mm-hmm. they called me up the last week of June, they being WWE, and they said, we decided we're going to bring you on board and to be in Tacoma, Washington on July the 2nd. So July the 2nd, 2001, is when I started my tenure with WWE. So did you were you as persistent with them as you were with Terry Taylor? No, because um, they said, we'll call you when we're ready. Don't call us, we'll um, call you. Yes, and um, so I was just planning on a life outside of wrestling, and fortunately, um, they called me up. And it was a great birthday present. July the 2nd was my birthday, so it was oh, a really? great way to spend my birthday. Now, you know, uh, people know what uh, wrestlers ended up going to the WWE, but did they take a lot of the, the people like there were referees and, and uh, you know, behind-the-scenes folks? Right. They took um, they took a few of the referees. I think Mickey Henson mm. they took. They took Nick yeah. Patrick, and they took Billy Silverman and myself. So the four referees, that's who, who they had. Yeah. And we came in to do the WCW invasion angle, of course. Right. Was, it, was it sad to, to you to see the way it ended? With, uh, after, after it riding so high, and then it just, it's, you know, it, it happened fast when well, you look at it relatively. It really was. And, you know, even up until we knew something was going on, we actually thought that Eric Bischoff was going to buy the company. Yeah. And um, up until, uh, I know it was uh, Jerry Briscoe showed up, Shane McMahon showed up, um, a couple other guys. I mean, at that point when they walked in, we knew yeah. – it's over. Riding, it was over. Um, yeah. So it was a shock. You know, a lot of tears that night, absolutely. Yeah. Now, uh, what was it like, though, to go to the WWE and uh, initially try and fit in there? How were you guys received up there? Before, I think anytime someone from the outside comes in, um, people are leery of you coming in because mm-hmm. you're trying to take their spot. 
But even for yeah, referees, was even it for like that for you guys too? Well, probably more so because there's even less spots for referees. Yeah. You know, um, but I think we had Jack Doan, uh, Chad Patton. Those were two guys that I really clicked with. I remember one story. They were they were sitting there playing cards or something, and something happened where. I threw water on one of them for some reason. I can't even remember why. <laughs> and, <laughs> a rib? So, so they, yeah, so they took me and they actually taped me to a chair, taped my mouth shut, taped my arms down, taped my legs down. Then they put a sign on me that said, The Rock Who? And they pushed me up to, for my first meeting with Dwayne Johnson. Okay. And I, <laughs> oh, and my finger was taped with the bird. Oh, so nice. I was giving the rock the bird, asking him who he was. And um, that's how they got me back for throwing some water on him. And, and how did that go over with uh, Dwayne? Oh, he laughed. He <laughs> laughed. He goes, well, who are you? <laughs> it doesn't matter who you are, right. you know. Um, but for some reason, we all just got along really, really well. And I'm sure that they were skeptical. Um, Earl was there as well. And um, he was very, very nice. And he took care of me as well. He just told me how things work there. You know, keep your mouth shut, do what you're told, and you'll yeah. be here as long as you want to be here. And, uh, you know, how, how was that, uh, you know, fitting in from a company that was the way it was run with WCW to, you know, a very corporate run uh, operation basically at that point with the WWE? Um, it, it was definitely a change. Yeah. You know, I was on my toes a little bit more. I'd become a little bit relaxed in WCW near the end. Um, so it was a whole new environment. But I, I had people that were looking out for me for some, for whatever reason. You know, mm-hmm. Earl definitely did. Um, and, and all the other referees. No one was worried about losing their spot. Now, I think it was because of the way they did the inv- invasion angle. Because we were two separate crews. Mm-hmm. Ryan Hebner was part of the WCW invasion angle as well with us. I think it was right. Nick, um, Billy Silverman, um, Brian, myself. Um, I remember us for, and I think Mickey Henson was still there, but I'm not sure. I cannot remember that. Yeah. Man, and, you know, and it's just amazing to think that now, uh, you know, you've been there that long. Uh, why do you think you've, you've been able to last as long as you have there? I don't know. I like to think it's because of my great hair, but <laughs> <laughs> I don't, Sean, seriously, I, I don't know, man. I, every time that I get to go to work, I'm just grateful. Yeah. You know, I, I'm, I'm a little bit older than the other guys. You know, I'm probably the oldest referee there. Um, Mike Kyoto, of course, he's, he's there, but he's not as old as I am. Yeah, and, I know. He you know, a young I'm just, kid. When I was there. I, my gracious. Yeah. And, um, you know, I just, I work hard. I do ring crew work as well. You know, set up, tear down the ring. And um, I think I do a pretty decent job. You know, I'm not, I know I'm not the best, but I'm definitely, people identify with me, mm-hmm. of course. Um, so maybe that helps. But I'm very, very loyal employee. And, um, you know, hey, I love the WWE. Yeah. They've been nothing but good to me. Yeah. And it's, uh, as you mentioned, it's such a glamorous life, uh, as, uh, as a referee. Oh, where you're yeah. Still, you're still setting up the ring. I mean, people, uh, you know, you have to understand that, uh, you got to wear a lot of hats, even, uh, in this day and age with the WWE, that, uh, it's not just you going in for these matches, uh, that, you're also involved behind the scenes. You say set up the ring, but I know it's a little, it's more involved than that. So, uh, tell me a little bit more about what your behind the scene work is about. Well, you know, the, the, the television versus the live events, the non-televised products, a little bit different. Mm-hmm. For non-televised shows, we may go in at 7.30, 8 o'clock in the morning to start the day. And that's where we'll mark the floor so we know where to put the ring and we'll build the ring. We'll, do the padding. We'll do the railings around. Um, if any of the other departments need help, we can help them with lighting and stage. Um, 
I don't mess with the audio video because I know nothing about those things, but I can I can help with the stage or, or with lighting a little bit. Yeah. Um, TV days, you get to go in a little bit later, but you're still there early in the morning. And once the show's over, Sean, someone has to take it down. And um, so we're always the last one to leave. Yeah, that's amazing. Uh, how have you seen this company grow from the time you came in there uh, to what it is now, because, uh, you just, all you have to do is, you know, maybe go behind the arena just to see what, just the trucks that are right. involved. But how have you seen it evolve over the years from the time you arrived to what it is now? Well, I remember on the live events, we used to come out and it would be a black curtain. Yeah. No lights, you know, there'd yeah. be yeah. whatever lights the arena had. That's what we would use a lot of times. Um, it has grown crazy. Yeah. You know, it used to be a 45-minute setup, and now it's a four- or five-hour setup. Um, same with, with Teardown. And with social media being involved so much, I mean, it's, it has changed so much. But I, I personally think it's for the good. Yeah. You know, everybody says old school, old school. Well, everything evolves, yeah. you know. I'm sure the people that watched wrestling in the 50s and 60s thought the stuff that was happening in the 70s and 80s was garbage. Mm-hmm. You know, and boring. Well, now people that are watching, you know, now and they look at the stuff from the 80s, they're like, what is that? They're moving so slow. They're not doing all the high spots. It's just a different product now. But I think it's much better. I think it's very, very exciting to watch. Um, and the guys are so athletic now with everything that they can do. Yeah, it's just amazing. Uh you know, Charles, we could we could go over uh, what you probably you probably I don't know if you ever counted how many matches you've done uh, just with the WWE, but I'm sure there's there's real moments that stand out, and uh, you know, two for sure, and another one I'll mention is you know the Cena, uh, you know the 16th uh, title. Uh, right. So we can start there, and then just the other two is you know uh, uh, Sean's retirement match, yeah, and also uh, with Rick and. Uh, uh, and Rick's retirement match. Absolutely. Those are definitely three of my top yeah. top three favorite. Um, you know, Cena tying Rick's title ring for mm-hmm. one. That was fantastic. I think that was against AJ Styles, right, at the Rumble, if I, I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I think. I, I think um, so. Yeah. I had actually torn my plantar fascia in that match. Um, so once that was done, I was out for a couple months yeah. with that. But, um, you know, Cena being the, the professional that he is, you know, he just stuck his hand out, gave me a handshake and gave me a big hug and said that he didn't want anybody else in there for that match but me because okay. he knew it would mean so much to me as well. And what about uh, Sean's retirement match? You know, I've, I've retired two, two of the greatest, you know. Yeah, I retired. Yeah, there. I mean, I was there. I made the count. So I retired them. Undertaker didn't, and Sean didn't retire Ric Flair. Yeah. I made the count. So, so I can take credit for retiring those two, I guess. But, uh, you know, just for them to put me in that spot, I mean, wow. Right? Yeah. Um, they had so many other great referees to choose from. And for whatever reason, I was the one that got lucky enough to be chosen. Yeah. Because, you know, for, for Rick's match, I know Rick did not go and say, hey, I want Charles as my referee. Um, for some reason, the company thought it would be a great idea to put me in the ring for that match. Well, uh, Charles, this has been awesome. And uh, I really, uh, for someone to, as you came into the business and I kind of put it that way before, where you just wanted to be around it. Uh, could you have ever imagined all the, the roads you've traveled, probably the planet now, and uh, all the different experiences you've had? Uh, how do you sum it all up? Um, truly blessed. You know, I'm lucky. It's not necessarily um, great talent. It's being in the right place at the right time. And because I look around, and there are so many referees that are so much better than what I do in the ring, you know. That's why I still, to this day, I watch the referees just as much as I watch what's going on in the match because I can learn something 
from everyone, you know. So I'm just lucky to be able to do it for as long as I have and yeah. um, just to be involved in it because I love this business. You know, this business is my life. The people I work with, they're family, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's the hard part about this business is when people go somewhere else or they go out of the business and you lose touch with them, you know. Yeah. Um, that's probably one of the hardest things about about this. Yeah. And you want to keep – and how much longer do you think you'll do it? You said 10 years? I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> I would love to, you know, yeah. I mean, if I can get another seven to 10 years in the ring and then hopefully there'll be some sort of job that I can do to help out the younger guys, maybe go to the performance center and help train or something like that. I would, you know, certainly be open to doing that. Yeah. Well, it's been a, a hell of a ride, uh, Charles, and, and I know it's it's not over yet, but I really want to thank you for coming on primetime. And how can uh, folks follow you? Or uh, get in touch, email, how can they? Uh... It's um, WWE Robinson, and that's for Twitter and Instagram. And, um, you know, just send me messages. I'll, I'll, I try to answer everyone because, yeah. um, hey, without the fans, we wouldn't have a business. So I, I, I try to, to communicate. And that's the one good thing about social media that I like is being able to communicate. If you see me walking through an airport or whatever, please come up and say hello. Yeah. I'm not. I'm not going to be a jerk and blow you off. <laughs> awesome. Well, uh, legendary referee, WWE referee Charles Robinson. Thank you so much for coming on primetime. Well, thank you, Mr. Legendary Sean Mooney. You're <laughs> you're a legend yourself, you know. And uh, I appreciate what you do. I love your podcast. Well, I hope you enjoyed the first part of our conversation with Charles Robinson. Really, just a, a fascinating guy. I mean, did you know that he was involved in all of that and that uh, he actually uh, stalked Ric Flair? Uh, you're going to be hearing more about that. Uh, can you believe it? And uh, people know him as Little Nate with WCW. And there's a lot more of the story coming up in part two, which is going to uh, drop this Friday at 6 a.m., But if you're a Patreon member, of course, you're going to get it early and ad-free. But uh, just a a great conversation. I think that uh, uh, folks uh, really enjoyed that part of it, and you're going to enjoy the second part of it just as much as well. Uh, And uh, we will be putting up the the video version on Patreon as well. You can see his tour that he gives us of his house. You get to see the actual Lil Nate robe that he has. And uh, really, just a great conversation. That will be coming your way very soon. Once again, I want to encourage you to uh, take advantage of this opportunity to try Audible for free. It's real easy to do. Just go to audible.com slash primetime because I just love audiobooks. So uh, check it out. If you're like me, you don't have time to turn the pages and you like to listen to stuff in your car, this is a great way to do it. Audible. So check it out. Audible.com slash Primetime. Follow us on Twitter and also uh, Instagram at Primetime Mooney. Check out our YouTube channel. Keep putting up more stuff and even uh, MooneyTees.com. We've got a new one coming out soon, but there's a great collection on PTSM uh, right now. Just go to MooneyTees.com. I think that's it. Thanks for listening, everybody. I'm Sean Mooney, and I am out. Mm-hmm.